Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Dr. Kalrit Chaudhary is an integrative neurologist and neuroscientist. She received her internship in internal medicine at UCLA and her neurology fellowship from UCSD. She has participated in over 20 clinical research studies in the areas of MS, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, ALS, and today, She's here to chat about her book titled Sound Medicine, How to Use the Ancient Science of Sound to Heal the Body and Mind. Kareet, welcome. Thanks, Jason. Good to see you again. So good to see you. So great to finally have you on the show. And so you have such an interesting background and perspective. So can you briefly chat about your personal journey to wellness, specifically Ayurveda and sound and and what you've personally seen and also in your practice. Okay, so I'm going to try to emphasize the briefly there because otherwise we'll use our entire time. You know, my journey, just like most people's journey begins before you realize it began. So it started very early on in life, both with Ayurveda and with sound therapy, although I didn't know I was doing no form of sound therapy at the time. In our house, we reached kind of for the kitchen as our medicine tool chest first before going to the physician. So Ayurveda was just always in the backdrop of our life. I always looked at food as medicine first before trying to, you know, go to the doctor's office, ironically. And with sound, my mom had brought us into meditation very early. We started a mantra meditation practice at uh, nine years of age. I was nine. My sister was six. And so that approach to balance was such a a common and integral part of my life that I didn't even know it was medicinal. <laughs> and so years later, when people started to talk about, you know, sound, it, the epiphany finally came that like, oh, I've been practicing a sound therapy because meditation was just simply what you did when you first got up and what you did when you came home. And then as I got into medical school, and like I think most people that go into medicine, you've done such a huge commitment towards this track all the things that I learned from my home and all of the wisdom, you know, that I I gained from that lineage of Ayurveda, all of a sudden seemed uh, like folk medicine, you know, old fashioned. And so I very quickly pushed that aside to invite in this brave new world of modern medicine. And over the following, I think it was 10 to 15 years where I was in my medical training and then practicing eventually as a neurologist was when I was the sickest in my entire life. And so it wasn't until as a neurologist, I got migraine headaches and couldn't treat them with all of the things that I knew how to use. That was when I went back, you know, to Ayurvedic medicine. And that was also when I realized the impact that both Ayurveda and sound medicine had on neurological patients. So then my personal experience with sound really translated into my professional experience as I started to see my patients uh, recover from neurodegenerative conditions. And, you know, Jason, it's funny because I think when you are gifted these things very early on, not that you don't treasure them, but you don't fully value them just because they come part of your, your home. 
It wasn't until I saw the profound effects of sound in my patients that I started to value it more as a personal practice, even though I was regular with it, you know, that turned on the intellect. And then suddenly I went deeper into like, wait a minute, why does this work? And why has it worked for me? And what has it done to my brain? So all those questions really came out when I saw the impact of it um, as a neurologist. Was that was that brief enough? No, there's a lot to unpack there. You know, I think many people are familiar with Ayurveda. I don't think they necessarily make the connection to sound and the role sound plays in Ayurveda. And I think it's really interesting, you know, you're a practicing neurologist and we, even those who have a little bit more modern holistic take on medicine, I don't think we talk enough about sound. Mm -hmm. And so why do you think sound tends to be so overlooked from a medical perspective? So this is a good question. I think it's a few things. One, we don't have the proper paradigm for biology yet to understand sound as a technology. And science, you know, scientific breakthroughs always predate technological breakthroughs. You have to have a breakthrough in science before you will have new technologies. And I think with you know, the emerging field, even though we call it emerging, it's really been emerging for more than four decades now of the human biofield. That particular paradigm of medicine, of, of biology and medicine, allows in vibrational therapies. And I think as that starts to happen, people will start to turn their attention more and more towards, you know, techniques that are using sound and light. I think we've also, unfortunately, both physician and patient, have fallen into this paradigm that healing happens outside of you. And some of these technologies, like using sound, it's an internal technology. It's almost like it's too simple to work, right? I, I think that's just a huge bias we have, unfortunately, nowadays in our society that we've gotten so complicated that we forgot like how simple actually the solutions are. Like if you think about food, for example, the simpler your diet, the healthier you are. And so sound, particularly audible sound, of course there's technologies using inaudible sound that we use all the time in medicine, like ultrasound and lithotripsy. But the idea that audible sound, something that you yourself could make, could heal, it's just fallen away from the way that we approach medicine as the therapy must be something outside of ourselves and it must be something very complicated and, you know, more sophisticated than anything that I would be able to do on my own. So I think we're just dealing with these two major paradigm shifts that are taking place slowly now. So you mentioned food and I think most people understand, you know, we should be eating closer to nature eating a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables and so forth. And, and people understand like at, at least how they should be thinking. And I think, you know, people agree mostly on the 80%, you know, eat food, not too much, mostly plants, the 20 in terms of how much meat, no meat, et cetera, lots of debate there, but we're not going to go there, but people agree like, okay, eat close to nature. So with that said, if we're thinking about food that way, that we should generally be eating closer to nature. Yeah. How should we be thinking about sound 
in our day-to-day lives, you know, from the moment we wake up to the time we, we were ready to hit the hay and get a great night's sleep. How does, how should we think, be thinking about sound? So you have to first understand what is sound and how does it impact the human being? We tend to think of sound, Jason, as the frequencies that you can hear with your ears, right? With the human ears. That's what we describe as sound. But that would mean that frequencies that animals can hear aren't sound, right? And so sound is really underlying frequencies. They're the underpinning of the material world. And what that means is that before something becomes material, it first exists as vibration. And those vibrations, when we're able to hear them, we call them sound. But even there, that requires a biology. It doesn't mean that those vibrations didn't exist before us. And, and this is getting into both what we're understanding you know, from quantum theory, but also what the mystical traditions from ancient cultures said. They, all, they said the same thing, that we're, we're vibrations first. And so when we think about the impact of these vibrations, I would say, just as you're saying we should eat close to nature, we should also be thinking close to nature. And the thing that influences our thoughts more than anything else, from what I've seen as you know, a neurologist, a neuroscientist, and an Ayurvedic practitioner, is sound. Sound has a way of creating brain entrainment that most rapidly influences our thoughts so that we think more in alignment to nature. And so what does that mean? to think more in alignment to nature, like, right? So, so what would that look like? Well, when you are out in nature, for example, you know, why we all crave being in nature, what happens? Well, something's happening in our brains where the neurons are firing differently. We have greater, you know, mind-heart connection, which now scientifically we're starting to measure that as heart rate variability. But that something happens where we become more peaceful individuals. And when we become more peaceful individuals, our thinking changes. We start having spontaneous you know, expressions of unconditional love, compassion, altruism. And so sound, for me, is the easiest way for us to tap into our innate you know, our innate nature by connecting ourselves to the frequencies of nature. So we become more peaceful human beings. And as our thoughts become more peaceful, our actions become more peaceful, our speech becomes more peaceful, right? All change happens within. And so that change begins by starting to create a resonant frequency from the mind with those higher frequencies that are in sync with our higher intelligence, our greater intelligence, our cosmic intelligence, that which connects us to everybody else. So you mentioned the sounds and the frequencies of nature, and it totally makes sense, but I live in a city. I live in Brooklyn. Many of our listeners right now live in cities that are noisy. I'm fortunate there's a great park here. I can get nature every day, but what about people who live in noisy cities? What should you do? So that again is the beauty of sound because in, in looking at tech, sound as a technology, we're not saying leave New York, you know, leave the city. It's saying bring all of that in with you. And no matter how much kind of sound pollution you're exposed to in any city, 
the greatest sound pollution we have is definitely the internal subconscious dialogue. That is absolutely the most toxic sound that we, you know, listen to. And depending on, you know, who, who you're reading, it's at least the majority of our thoughts. And in some places, it's like 80 to 90% of our thoughts are actually negative. So that doesn't mean that you've got to leave the city. It means, okay, so even if you're in the city, how are you connecting to those frequencies of nature that bring that peacefulness? And that's where the sound technologies came from. It wasn't that you had to go and, you know, leave everything behind and, and live in a cave. It's bring the cave, you know, to New York. Bring that center of peace wherever you are. Was it? Is what you're getting at essentially reframing some of the sounds we experience in the city, what, you know, whether it's the, the humming of the subway rather than that humming being a nuisance, maybe it's embracing the humming and finding the rhythm in the humming. I'm, do I have that correct? Sort of. I think whenever you look at anything, you're going to find an underlying organization in anything that seems chaotic. But if we ask a chaotic mind to make order of chaos, you're asking kind of the impossible. What I'm saying is first, you know, choose a sound therapy that you, you do on a regular brace, basis that makes your mind more organized, that makes your mind, you know, more orderly. And when you do that, automatically that subway humming is going to feel differently because you're going to internally be connected to a different resonant frequency in the mind. Does that make sense? It, it does. It does. And, and I'm going to zoom out again. I'm going to come back to food. Okay. In the same way, <laughs> many will say, avoid processed sugar, enjoy broccoli. Can the same be said for sound? Are there certain sounds we should try to avoid and certain sounds we should try to experience more of? So I'm going to answer this with a food analogy because, you know, of course, <laughs> since, since we're going there, Jason, since the, you know, brain gut connection is so much a part of, of the work I've done, I don't tell people to stop enjoying sugar and enjoy broccoli instead. I tell people shift your microbiome and then let it spontaneously start craving broccoli and let it spontaneously not crave the sugar. And so I'm saying the same thing for the mind, that instead of trying to shut out the negative experiences of sound, bring in something that naturally shifts the way that the brain is firing, shifts the brain physiology, and then what is naturally there in your environment that is harmonized, harmonizing, you're going to pick up on more. You know, in every situation, and I'm sure you've noticed this too, I've, I've certainly noticed the big difference, you know, over time. But in every situation, there's always a positive and a negative. In every situation, it's never all one or the other. And as my mind has shifted more and more, I'm attuning myself more and more, and I'm just noticing more and more of the positive that's there, right? So instead of saying, and, and what's wonderful is it helps me to be able to work with such a huge array of, of people because I don't need them to change to be able to pull out the, their positive traits for whatever we're doing. And so what that means is 
instead of looking at sound as something, as an external experience that you've got to shut out this sound and bring that in. Not that I'm not, you know, if you want to consciously bring in healing sounds, perfect. But what's even better is using a sound therapy, like in the form of like a mantra meditation or, you know, so many of these ancient um, sounds in like the Tibetan tradition or like Gregorian chants, like bring those in so that your brain then starts to resonate with that so that you take that resonance in your brain out to the environment. So your experience of your environment is now different. Does that make sense? Then you're not having to hide away from the loud sounds or hide from the harsh words because you're able to maintain a new frequency within. It makes sense. In terms of frequencies, in terms of controlling our environment, I go to headphones. I'm wearing headphones right now. People are listening to this very show right now, probably with headphones on. And so they're going to their Spotify playlist, their Apple music playlists. People love music. They love playlists. With that said, are there some musicians or specific songs that can be potentially beneficial for stress, anxiety, pick me up? Is that possible? Absolutely. We have studies that, you know, even show that. I mean, we have one study that I really like as a neurologist. It's hard for me not to be drawn to the studies that show improvement with neurodegenerative conditions or other neurological conditions. There was, you know, one study that looked at patients with traumatic brain injury and they were exposed to, it's called neurologic music therapy. And it's interesting because the way that they do it, it's a, a type of therapeutic singing and a melodic intonation, which is very similar to the ancient ways that people used to chant like the different mantras or, or do like the different ancient sound practices. But even just after, I think it was just 30 minutes of four of those sessions, something around, you know, that quantity even after that, their brain started shifting and their executive function. And that's, that's the part of the brain that we use for planning, organization, all of the most difficult things that improved and their anxiety and depression, you know, was reduced. So what that shows is that music absolutely can, you know, change the way that your brain is firing. And are there particular types of music now with that? It was therapeutic. So if you listen to that, you wouldn't even necessarily go like, wow, that really captured me because it was very kind of clinical, yet that still made an improvement. Now, I love things from thousands and thousands of years ago. So my my playlist, according to my son, is so boring. Uh, you know, but I love listening to artists that are bringing back to life, like some of these ancient chants, like Krishna Das and David Mitten. The important thing is what is connecting to you emotionally? Like what is connecting to your heart? What is uplifting you? Because that internal connection, right, to where you can feel like that emotional response to the sound, that is so important. And so you know, it, it depends partly on, are you using the sound? Like, as you said, you've got headphones in, you're on the subway. Okay. So if that's how you're using sound, then what will uplift you so that that time spent on the subway is useful time where you're altering neurophysiology, you're altering the way that you're thinking. And if you're altering the way that you're thinking, you're altering every single cell of your body. But in addition to that, you know, create a time 
of silence where you're using some of these sound practices for that brain reset. So that goes back to what I was saying before, kind of like the same that you would do for a gut reset. Use, you know, maybe 20 minutes a day where you're doing a sound practice, you know, doing it quietly internally or outside for that specific reason of resetting your brain. So no matter what you're doing during the day, you're creating a strong resonant frequency with that higher, you know, biophysiology or neurophysiology that brings peace into your life. Does that make sense? It does. And I'm going to zero in on the specific type of music, classical music. Is there something about classical music that can be beneficial for the brain? And I'll provide a quick anecdote. And maybe I was just an idiot, but in high school, before the you know SATs, a couple of my friends and I would listen to classical music, you know, leading up to it in an effort to tell ourselves that the <laughs> classical music is going to make us smarter and add a couple of points to their SATs. I don't think it worked for me, but... Is there, is there something, you know, to classical music or, or to jazz or to like these different, like, I'll, I'll just start with classical. Is there something to classical specifically? Well, when we talk about classical music and we're not just talking about Western classical music, but classical music in general, it was more mathematical. You know, there was a precision to it. And, you know, some of my friends who are brilliant mathematicians are also happen to be brilliant musicians for the same reason that there's an orderliness to the music there that is similar to kind of the orderliness you find in math, which of course, in nature, you see those mathematical principles, you know, um, repeated again and again. And, you know, there was actually one other study, Jason, that was done, and I believe it was with Bach's Italian Concierto. I think that's what it was. It was a classical, it was a study done with classical music with people with neurodegenerative condition who had lost memory. And the classical music actually helped them to regain some of those lost memories. So there is something to classical music that is embedded in the math that that it represents. But I would, and when we talk about classical music now, we're going into like some of the um, ancient musical traditions. They were extremely mathematical. Even the way that they were chanted, the tone, everything had such a specific, you know, rule to it. And that when you are exposing your brain to things that are orderly in that way, your brain itself becomes orderly. And that's the phenomenon of brain entrainment. It just simply saves Entrainment is something we see in natural systems again and again to save energy. And so when our brain enters into that entrainment, it uses more neurons. The brain synchronizes. And so as the neurons synchronize, they become more efficient. And that is, it's, it's really a mathematical principle. And it's when the music is in the math that that comes to life, where the math comes to life in the brain. Does that make sense? It does. And, and, you know, I think of a, a problem that so many are facing right now, anxiety. Mm -hmm. And, you know, th th there are a lot of tools in the wellness toolkit when someone is dealing with anxiety. What, what role can music play? Are there certain sounds if, if we feel anxiety coming on? that 
could help alleviate some of that pressure. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's where a lot of the research with sound has led to is looking at things like depression, anxiety, and neurocognitive function. So it's one of the areas where sound has, has been readily explored. So, you know, this, the studies vary quite a bit from using, as I said, you know, neurogenic medical therapies to using classical music. From my own research from India, there's specific mantras that are also extremely beneficial for the treatment of anxiety. And there's one in particular that I give to many of my patients, and it's just Om Aim Namaha. That, and those are called bija mantras, meaning they don't mean anything. I think most people have been exposed to the bija mantra of Om. And these are sounds without meaning that have a particular resonant frequency from nature. So there's so many ways to approach sound and anxiety, but that's one that I oftentimes will prescribe is Om Aim Namaha, Om Aim Namaha. Om Aim Namaha. And you, you can just simply, you know, say it out loud at first for 20 minutes a day, but then eventually as it gets softer and softer and you just repeat it gently in your mind, within 20 minutes, you'll notice a reduction in your anxiety. I love that. And we're going to have to put the pronunciation in the show notes for everyone. I love that. And so you mentioned studies. I'm curious. Was there one specific study you came across while writing the book or just in general in, in your research where your jaw just dropped and said, wow, like, I, I can't believe we're not talking about this more. Yeah, there was one. And it was funny because it's a study. I think partly why my jaw dropped, it wasn't because it was the first time I heard it. It's that I had read it over and over in the ancient texts, you know, that I was studying while I was in India my jaw dropped to see that somebody had replicated in a laboratory what they had already said happens. And it was from a French immunologist, oh, and I'm going to completely butcher his name, hold on, Jacques Benveniste. Benveniste. I think I got that right. And he published his results in Nature, I think it was in 1988, and it was a very, very controversial publishing because, again, it challenged our concept of medicine. And this study came out because one of his um, assistants in the lab made a mistake. They over-diluted a solution to the point that none of the allergen, he was an immunologist, so all of his studies were, you know, of the immune system, but none of the allergen was actually present in the solution, but the white blood cells were still reacting to it. And so the lab was stumped. They repeated it, you know, several times. They kept getting the same results. And so he came up with this concept that there must be water memory. And so the next question was, where is the memory being held? And he was convinced that it was in waveforms. And as he continued to pursue this line of thought, much to the chagrin of, you know, the scientific community, because now this is starting to get into feels like homeopathy, Ayurveda, Siddha medicine, all the ancient sciences. But as he went deeper and deeper into it, he started to speculate that sound waves were somehow carrying that memory. So eventually what he did is he was, you know, convinced that all molecules create a um, resonant frequency, a particular song, okay? 
So he actually recorded the frequency made, you can say the song of heparin. Jason, are you familiar with what heparin is? Sure. Blood thinner. Yeah, it's a blood thinner. So it's a medication. So he recorded that. Now those frequencies are too low for us to hear. So he used an amplifier and then exposed water just to the sound that heparin makes. So it's not putting any of the molecule. He recorded the frequency of heparin, you know, the song that heparin sings, so to speak, recorded it, exposed it to water, and then added blood to the water, added, you know, the water to the blood. And the blood reacted as if heparin was added. To me, that was really just startling. Wow. Again, not because I hadn't heard of this phenomenon, and this is a lot of the techniques used in, in you know, you had mentioned before people know about Ayurveda, they don't know much about um, sound. Not When you look back, that wasn't true at all. Ayurveda is grounded in sound. They used mantras even to grow the herbs, then in the preparation of the herbs, and then the patients were supposed to recite those mantras when they're taking the herbs. And so in both of those ancient lineages, I had heard of all the way that sound was used for healing and particularly the use of water with sound and adding particular herbs into water and then using sound. So that concept, you know, wasn't new, but to have a French immunologist replicate this in a lab using heparin. I mean, there's nothing <laughs> secret about heparin, you know, no. that even something like heparin exists in its sound quality, that the entire molecule exists in its sound frequency. And that is the basis of these ancient medical systems, that sound carries the code of all of creation. So that study in particular, I was just like, that's absolutely amazing. And I think this will be work that as we're starting to discuss about the human biofield and doing more studies, that there will be future scientists that replicate those studies. And that will be our launching point for really understanding how to use sound as therapy. And is there a specific case study that stands out in your practice where, you know, you address food, you address lifestyle, and then you threw sound at it and sound was the difference maker. <laughs> well, you know, the, the difference with my practice, Jason, is when people come to me, and I'm sure this is true for many of the guests that you, you know, interview, I'm like physician number 20 on their list. Like of course, I, see, yeah. I see the people that have already done all of that typically and we're, we're always adding like some of the Ayurvedic principles. We're always kind of simplifying their 30 supplement list down to like just the five and clearing out their food a little bit more just from an Ayurvedic perspective. But all of my patients, pretty much one of the major additions that we add on is the use of sound. And I can't take patients as far without the use of sound. Like to me, it's just become like, a critical tool. Sound is my right hand in medicine. Without it, you can clean up the physical body, but you won't get, and, and sometimes you start to really get into like the, the mental body, but you don't get much deeper than that. And you have to get deeper into kind of where are the blocks? What are the traumas? What are the unprocessed experiences that are being held in the nervous system? 
And for me, sound has been the key to unlock like those deep obstacles to health. It's, it's almost always, we have to incorporate sound. It's not that it's just like sound alone. Oftentimes we'll also incorporate things like some kind of trauma therapy, like, you know, what is blocking the system from flourishing? But it's very difficult to go deep into the psyche, into those corners without the use of sound. I, I haven't accomplished it yet, as a, both as a practitioner as well as a patient. So heart rate variability, HRV. You know, I'm wearing my whoop, I'm wearing my aura, I track my HRV. <laughs> How does sound play a role? All right. So let's, do you mind if I use my husband as an example? Of course. Here? So I don't know why he wanted this as a Christmas present. I got him some device that measures, you know, HRV and then like puts you into these different categories of how stressed out you are or how not stressed out you are. And my husband is a sound practitioner. He has trained with some of these, you know, masters from like the Siddha tradition. And so all of his healing work is grounded in those um, ancient traditions. And much of his um, day, he's either using sound in the form of different mantras, you know, or using it internally. So sound is like a part of his daily routine at work. And so he's been wearing this device for, it was a little over a month. And I said, well, hey, let's, you know, let's take a look. Let's just see how stressed out you are. Because, you know, he's a dad, he's a husband, he's, you know, got the same American life that we all do, running around, dropping off kids, picking up kids, getting kids to martial arts, all this stuff, right? And we looked at his readings based on his HRV and 96% of the time he was in the highest place of relaxation (laughs) and 4% of the time he was in the second highest state of relaxation. You know, and, and my husband's just like, he's, he's an American. Like he's not, you know, like somebody from another planet, like he's living very much the same life that we all are, but sound in in the form of these ancient sounds in particular is a part of almost every moment of his day in some way or another. So to me, that was really profound of just going like, oh my God, you're relaxed. Like not like, even when I'm arguing with you, you're relaxed. (laughs) You know, even, even our teenage son is like, you know, just in one of those downward adolescent spirals like something in him is still it's not changing his hrv wow like has science gone there yet in terms of studying hrv and the effect sound it can have you know i wouldn't be surprised if they have i don't know specifically at the time that i was researching the book i didn't find something looking at both of those things but I wouldn't be surprised if they had from that from the time I published it or if they're not in the process, simply because I think more and more as we're doing work, particularly with music therapy and the mind and music therapy and neurodegenerative conditions, because it's a logical next step to say, well, if you can reverse a mind that has been diseased, a mind that is struggling with you know, a chronic neurodegenerative condition, what can you do for an assumed healthy, whatever we call healthy nowadays, but at least a mind where the brain itself has not degenerated? And that's where, you know, the HeartMath Institute and all of these other people that are looking at HRV, they're really looking at 
our ability to regulate the mind, right, using the, the heart as like the pacemaker, so to speak, which also I think is interesting because, Jason, that was a key part of many of these ancient writings, especially in the Siddha tradition, is they kept talking about the power of the heart, the power of the heart. And it's easy when you're reading these ancient texts to think that they're being poetic instead of being biological. You know, they're describing poetry instead of biology. And it, it's just, it's pure biology. And as I started to look more at, you know, heart rate variability, I was like, oh no, they're talking about this connection, this capacity that the heart has, that when you're settled in that place, and I'll, I'll use the word devotion, just because that's oftentimes what's used kind of traditionally, is that when you're in a place of devotion where your heart is open, you're feeling that fountainhead of, you know, altruism, unconditional love, and peacefulness that automatically it changes the way that the brain is firing. So I, I wouldn't be surprised. It's it would certainly be an easy experiment to do. So I wouldn't be surprised if it hasn't been done. I just can't off the top of my mind rattle off like a study that they've done. Do you find yourself, you know, as you maybe turn on the radio or listen to your son's music, find yourself paying a lot more attention to lyrics? Well, I don't listen to the radio. I, you know, I don't expose myself generally to things that I find unpleasant. I just feel like our time on earth is so short that we have to really work on staying synced up so that we can do as much as we possibly can to create positivity. My son's music, that was certainly difficult when he went into that phase. And because, of course, like, you know, when your kids are younger, wait, oh, Jason, just wait until this phase. <laughs> Because when he first really got into music, it was super dark. I mean, it was just super dark. But I stuck to kind of the science in that, like, we had so much positive sound in our house that he was being exposed to. And I also know that this was normal adolescent, like, behavior that they're supposed to go out and kind of experiment. And over time, what I found was because we had such a strong foundation for it already at home, his mind rejected it and so it took about a year for him to go from like I mean just some of the most awful music I have ever heard in my entire life you know to now like it's fairly more upbeat and he knows how much you know it like sound means stuff so mostly if he's listening to anything he thinks might be disruptive it's his headphones but it was a self-regulation and it really it took about a year from age of 12 to 13 his choices in music radically changed well, you know, as I, I, I'm reflecting on our conversation and I'm thinking about, you know, some of the music I love and listen to, some of it is a little bit lighter, a little bit more uplifting. Some of it is really great music, but some of those lyrics are a little bit dark. Some of the, some of that music has an energy to it that is a little bit frenetic. And, you know, as you talk about HRV and, and the impact it has, you know, I think it's important to recognize, you know, I think that the power of sound and music and it, ha and it has, if you listen to music all day, that tends to be a little bit darker, frenetic, and potentially violent, probably going to have an impact on you. Yeah. Uh, well, look, look at the movies. When you watch a movie without sound, without the background music, there's not much of emotional response. And it's the music that invites the emotion. So I think it's just starting to become conscious of those types of things. What is the sound you're being exposed to? 
but also like Jason, what is the sound that you're making? Like what is, you know, what is this, what is the speech that you're engaged in also? You know, that's just as important to choose speech that isn't hateful or violent or frenetic because that is also sound. And that sound that somebody else is receiving, and as you're making sound, you're, all of the cells of your body are receiving it. So that there's so many ways that we can consciously choose, you know, more of sound. So what's one thing that everyone should do, no matter where they are in their, their journey with sound, mm-hmm. what's one thing we should all do that would help incorporate sound in a way that's beneficial for our health and well-being. I'm going to give you the absolute simplest and then kind of the next step so that for people who are like, I'm not going to do this. This is, this is the one thing because all sound has impact. The one thing is as soon as you wake up, just bringing your, your hand to your heart, you know, in many Eastern traditions, you'll fold your hands together and face them up against your heart and just internally say, Thank you for life. You know, just starting that, just thank you for life. Just implanting that little seed of gratitude that life is a gift and doing the same time, same thing at bedtime, you know, hands to your heart and just saying, thank you for this life. If that sounds like, okay, I can do that, then I would really invite people to choose like a sound therapy, just like what I gave you, that the the mantra Om I'm Namaha, just to help with anxiety, you know, for 20 minutes. And I give so many different of these ancient sound prescriptions in my book, Sound Medicine, but you can find them in almost every single existing tradition. Like find one sound. In Christianity, it's Amen. It's simple, just that. Just repeat that sound. You'll see that particular combination of that sound of om, amen, in so many different cultures. Just do that for 20 minutes. That's it. I love it. The first one is just thank you. Step two is just that. How about, since I'm huge into music, a playlist, what about can we play Louis Armstrong's What a Wonderful World as we wake in the morning? That's a good one to wake up to, right? What a Wonderful World. See, like, that's such a simple thing. How do you wake up in the morning, right? Like, if you're using an alarm, like, my son figured this out on his own, that he had this awful alarm. I'm like, why do you set it to that? Why don't you set it to something that is soothing? And so he just changed that little practice. But, you know, that's a simple, there's so many ways for us to change our experience of sound. My, my, my kind of, like, point is, if you're always dependent on your external environment, to give you therapeutic sound, you're missing the most potent source of sound. And that is the one that you create internally because when your brain starts to resonate with that sound, that sound is like on replay all the time. I love it. And so in closing, where do you think the science is going on sound? Is there a study you would love to see happen? Where where do you think this conversation is going? There's so many studies I'd love to see happen. I mean, it's the science on sound is just starting, Jason. It's not really even going. It's just starting. We're so in the early stages of this. And again, it's because of this, this 
slowly changing paradigm shift to not just looking at the body as, you know, this lock and key model of like molecule hits here and then it triggers something else, but looking at us more as fields of energy and that energy permeates our bodies and causes shifts in biology. As we start to deeper explore the human biofield as a scientific paradigm for, you know, for human biology, I, I think the sky is going to be the limit. I think we're going to just, we're already starting to see how you can use sound in place of surgery. And so we can start to really look at what are all of the other ways that we can use sound to treat conditions that right now we're using kind of barbaric ways of, of treating. So what my dream would be, tell me if it's possible. You know, I love music, but I, I like my, I, you know, I love my Grateful Dead. I love the Beach Boys, love the beat. I like lots of music, lots of music. <laughs> I would love to get to a place where we've got playlists and ratings. So if you're having, you know, if you're dealing with anxiety and stress, here's your playlist and here's how we're ranking the music. Good Day Sunshine from the Beatles is, is ranked a 9.2 on a scale of 10 for anxiety <laughs> over here. Or this, so I think that would be, I think that would be amazing. Is that possible or am I just dreaming? That, no, Jason, that's how it used to be. So that's the way that people used to be treated in the past was through the use of music. And, you know, Rudolf Steiner actually had predicted, and this was way over, gosh, how long ago did he say this? Over a century ago, that there'll be a time where we will approach the human body the way that we tune a piano with simply, you know, applying different frequencies. So we're definitely going, we will definitely go in that direction because we came from that direction. And human beings tend to have a, a cyclic path. We tend to come back to, to knowledge that we've lost before. But no, it's not dreaming. It's if, if you're dreaming about how we used to do things a very long time ago, and we're just returning to it. Well, I hope we get there. I want to get to a place where I go to my integrative dock and I'm getting my, here's my grocery shopping list. Here's my, my, my workout. And then here's my playlist. Yeah. I, and I want that to be part of the prescription. I want my playlist. But Jason, that does exist. Like, uh, as I was saying, that is what we have done with our patients. We said, okay, here are the sounds you need now for what you're going through. So it's, it's not that, it's really not that difficult. We just have to embrace this changing science. And then the technology always kind of falls out very rapidly. That's our strength as a culture is in our technology. So we'll get there. And if, if you and I don't get there in our lifetime, our children will certainly get there. Fascinating. Well, Corey, thank you so much. It was my pleasure, Jason. Thanks for having me. 